So, uh, if you don't know, we've been doing a series on the book of John. And what we have said all semester long is that John is writing his letter, his gospel, this biopic, if you will, of the person of Jesus, so that you might believe that Jesus was who he said he was. You see, it's easy to read a gospel and to say, yeah, I don't really know about this Jesus guy. And John says, well, that's why I'm writing. I'm writing so that you would know, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the one sent from and come from God. And tonight, we get a great glimpse in to uh, John's uh, vantage point. We get to see something of Jesus tonight that I think is frankly quite wonderful. Well, everything, I believe, everything in us, everything in us screams that if we perform, we'll be accepted. That if we do, then we are. That identity, who we are, is based on performance, what we do. I'm reminded of the story of this singer. Uh, She was performing in front of literally tens of thousands. She was in her hometown. But during the particular show, she kept messing up. She kept dropping lyrics. And you know what she did in the middle of her show? She stopped. She sat down on the stage and said, I'm just not feeling it tonight. But what follows after, I think, delivers the greatest punch. Because she said, y'all still love me, right? I mean, the principle deep within her was, if I want to be loved, I must perform well. And if I don't perform, even though in my art, will I still be loved? Well, surely you might think this was a lesser artist. Somebody of not great renown. But did you know that this was actually the queen of pop herself, Madonna. I love it. I love the picture. Will y'all still love me if I don't perform? Here's another example. The TV show Hard Knocks, an HBO series, follows around the Houston Texans this season and this past month in August. And it's basically a show where there are several guys trying to make the cut for the professional team. They're trying to get the roster down to 53 players. And as the show sort of goes, it highlights certain people. And one of the people of highest interest on the show was the defensive back, a man by the name of Charles James. Now, the show sort of leads you on. Is he going to make it? Is he going to not? And you you get connected with him. And there's this one scene in particular where he and some other of the defensive backs are really messing up. And he's like, y'all, this is my job. My job is on the line here. We got to get this, you know, what, together. Well, in the last episode, we learn that he is cut from the team. And what's really interesting is that his five foot nine frame is sided against him despite his heart. And the GM, the general manager, Rick Smith, sits him in his office and says to James, some guys that earn the right to be on the team may not make the team. And there it is. If we perform, we'll be accepted. But what happens? What happens when we do all that we can and yet are not? You see, I think that you and me have everything in common with those two little vignettes. You see, I think us too, we too believe that if we will just perform, then finally we'll be acceptable. That finally we'll just be likable. Finally we'll be in. Think about it with your school and your grades, right? I mean, if you make the best grades, guess what? You get the best 
fellowships or you get the best school programs to be invited into. And so the idea is, is if I make the grade, if I do the best, then what? I finally arrived. I finally achieved. And that says something about me. Or perhaps it's with relationships, right? If I could just get her to go out with me. If I could just get him to ask me out. If I could just, you know, get her back or get him back, then finally my life would be okay. Because the affection, the love, the friendship from the other is what brings meaning and identity to my life. Maybe that's not your bag. Well, how about this for some of you ladies? If I can just hit the right dress size, then I'll be acceptable. If I can just hit the right body weight, I'll make it. And fellows, you're not off the hook either. You see, if I just look like this, if I could just get my bench press or my squats or whatever it is you're going to judge your life by, if I could just get it there, then finally I would be acceptable. And I just want to say this, that Christians are not immune from this either, right? Because how many of us have found ourselves thinking this, you know what, if I just read my Bible every day, then God will finally accept me. You know what, if I do not two campus ministries, but four campus ministries on campus, and I go to church twice a week, once on Sunday, and once in my small group, then, dadgummit, finally, God will have to finally accept me and let me in, right? There's something deep inside of us that screams, if we perform, then we'll be accepted. That who we are it's what we do. And I just want to show you tonight that all of us, I think, believe at some point that acceptability and worth are based on accomplishment. What in the world, what in the world, therefore, what hope do we have? And that is why John chapter 5 is in the Bible. It is here to show us tonight that God does not, in fact, accept us based on any sort of performance but on our need. Now that ought to set some of you free. That the qualification for you and for me is nothing. One pastor put it this way, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. And tonight, John is going to show us then about this wonderful healing that comes to this man. Here is a crippled man, a paraplegic if you will, and it is through him and his healing that we get to learn another or better way about the economy of God's grace. That grace itself will be the, 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 uh, the what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, dadgummit, the, um, here it is of the kingdom. Grace. It's the currency of the kingdom. So tonight I'll use grace and healing interchangeably. And what I want to begin to show you all tonight is that this text shows us three important things. The setting of the healing. The source of the healing. And then thirdly, lastly, the, um, the actual scandal of the healing. So let's take a look here. Looking firstly at that, this idea of the setting of the healing. Look with me at verses 1-5 through five of this text. So what is going on here? Well, here we see Jesus encountering a paraplegic man. A man that is crippled, it says. He's an invalid. And what is going on? Well, Jesus walks up to this pool, this pool called Bethesda. And there are all of these crippled people, needy people, laying around hoping to get, their, get in this, the water first that is believed to have these sort of magical or mystical powers that 
if they could just get in first after the water is stirred, then God would magically heal the people that got in first. And so here is this man for 38 years being crippled and trying to be healed. Now, I don't know what y'all think about 38 years, but I am 38 years old. And I cannot imagine the entirety of my life being spent crippled. Some of you are 19. Double your life. Double all your days. And you get a sense of how long this man has suffered with his condition. Think as well about where he would have fit into society. Frankly, he wouldn't. He would have been an outcast socially. He would have been the bottom of the rung. He would have been, are you all ready for this? He would have been uncool. Right? Like three Facebook friends and nobody following him on Insta. That sort of thing, right? But the idea is this. He was an outcast. And what that is showing us over and over again is that this man though, though he received healing from Jesus, that the setting itself is that this man could do nothing to receive the grace that he would surely get. And that is a huge point I want you to see. He couldn't do anything to get the grace he received. You see, and I think that this is true as well for us. Y'all, when we ask ourselves, what must I do to receive grace and kindness and acceptance with God? Here is the answer. Nothing. You must do nothing. And the reason is, is because you can do nothing. Y'all, the picture of this man being crippled here is meant to reflect both body and soul how we are before God. That this setting is a picture of need. That grace only comes to the needy. And here's the great news. All of us, all of us are needy. Now most of us don't like this because it means that we'll have to get over, we'll have to get over the best estimations about ourselves. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The best estimations of yourself? I mean, it's sort of like we live and we breathe and we, we, we sort of rise and fall on our own press. Listen to this one story. It, uh, it hit ESPN this week. Sorry about the sports analogies this week. That's just the way they go. Um, the Liverpool Football Club over in England uh, released their manager. And uh, a guy by the name of Adam Neal uh, applied for this esteemed job, okay? And when he sent in his CV, as the Brits call it, okay, when he sent in his resume, he cited on as a rationale for being hired was that he had recent success in the FIFA in the FIFA video game. Okay? So he brought like a lower rung team up out of that to the you know to the professional Premier League. And this is what he cited. And the big joke was was that the owner of the team wrote him back and sort of said, Hey, we appreciate your interest, however your success in FIFA is not going to be sufficient grounds for you to, you know, actually coach this team. But I think that that's humorous because of this. Because I actually think most of us live like that. We live with this deluded picture about our abilities and our condition. We don't really think that we're needy. We don't really think that we're as bad off as we actually are. But I want you to see here that Jesus is showing us it's that our, it is our need that qualifies us. What do you all think of that tonight? Like, what do you make of God saying to you, whoever you are, dear one, do not run from your need. In fact, run into it. So what does this mean? Let me get real specific. It means 
that grace comes to the brokenest, if that's a word, messiest of people. And so I want to put your conscience at ease tonight to know that there is hope for you in the Gospel. That Christ delights in showering mercy on the worst of us. Now, you may say, I don't like that. I don't like that. Well, listen, I want you to understand a little bit about... Can you go to the next slide there, Mary Elizabeth? Listen to what Kevin DeYoung writes. He writes, we desperately need grace in our lives. We need to hear from Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need to know He doesn't expect us to clean up our act before we come to Him. He implores us to come now, today, just as we are, in brokenness, in pain, in humility, in repentance, and in faith. Y'all, can I ask you this if you're a Christian tonight? How do other people see you living your life? Here's a litmus test. Do they say, boy, that blank, insert your name, he or she really demonstrates a need for Christ? Or, as y'all all know in this culture, in this campus, is it, man, why would that person need Jesus? They've got their life together. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're all TCU students. We're all sort of like, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of we've got to keep it all together. The gospel comes crashing home on that and says, no, it's your need that you need. The gospel frees us, no matter who we are, to live with the secret out. We don't have it all together. We, like this man, are needy. Even the most accomplished of us. And I want to say this, that if we lack, if we are needy, we have nothing And then that means, y'all, that grace and healing must come from outside of us. It must. It must. And the good news is, is that's where it leads us to our second point tonight. The idea of the source of this healing. Where did this healing come from in this man? And we'll see it in these verses 6 through 9. Take a look there. You'll see it here. Jesus walks up to this man. And I love, I love verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to the man, said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, just think about that for just a second. He knew he'd already been there for a long time. Here he was crippled. He's already told him, I can't get healed. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And it's like the most obvious of questions. Well, yeah, I want to be healed. I mean, I'm sitting here, I can't walk. And you're asking me if I want to be healed. You see, what is Jesus doing there in that moment? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment, of course. But I just want to set it up. And here's what I want you to see. Do you notice He doesn't say to the man, He does not say, well, if you have enough faith, then you'll be healed. You know what? If you promise, crippled man, to change your life, then I'll heal you. Say, no. Grace, y'all. Grace is never bartered bartered or traded. It is only received freely. And what this is showing us is that Jesus alone is the source of that healing. That grace comes to us because of what He has done. What's bound up in His heart, not in how we perform or how we live our lives out. And that will be radical freedom for a lot of y'all tonight to know that if you began to believe it. That you can rest tonight knowing that Jesus has done everything to bring us back to the Father and to heal our relationship with Him. 
Now let's go back to this idea of the question. What was Jesus doing there? And this is going to sort of be a long point of application. So just hang with me. I think that what Jesus is doing there, when Jesus presses in and He says, do you want to be healed? It's like He's saying this. All of us have our stuff. Think about this man. For 38 years, what has been His identity? It has been His, 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 his condition. Right? And I love it because Jesus is sort of pulling back the veil and saying, do you want to be healed? And you can just kind of imagine the man going, yeah, I mean, of course I want to be healed. And he goes, uh-uh, uh-uh. Do you want to be healed? It's like that moment when all the cards are on the table. When you're fully exposed, right? And here looks Jesus piercing through the back of your skull, looking at you saying, I'm asking you, do you want the thing that has so defined and ordered your life? Do you want to be healed from that? And I don't care who you are in this room, me included, all of us have got something that if we're honest, when Jesus looks at us and says, do you want to be healed? If we're honest, we go, no. No, I don't. Because that means an utter change for me. It means that I'm going to have to give up some of the things that I most want, need, and I'm drawing my life on. It, you're, you're saying to me, Jesus, if I want to be healed, that means I've got to take the umbilical cord of my life and whatever I'm plugging it into, and I've got to pull it out of there and have you put it into yourself. Do you want to be healed? That's what Jesus is asking. And it is a probing question. You, do you sense it? Do you sense some sort of digging in to the very heart of who we are saying, do you want to be healed? I think this, that Jesus is giving an incredible dignity to this man by taking him to the source of his greatest need and saying, do you, do you, do you want to be healed? Are you ready to go there with me? It's a wonderful, wonderful point because what he's trying to say is, is that I, I am the true source of this healing and grace. And I can give it, and I can give it in spades. Y'all, I just want to ask you tonight. Do you want to be healed? Jesus stands ready. He stands ready to give you all of Himself. To give you all of the real thing that you're looking for in these lesser counterfeits. Jesus stands ready to do that tonight. Reach to Him. Cry out to Him. Long for Him. He gives you Himself. Well, this lastly brings us, this man has found the healing he so desperately longed for. He had done nothing to receive it. Christ gave healing precisely because this is what Christ has come to do. But it leads us naturally to the question, what then does a heart and body healed by grace look like after the healing comes? What does that heart look like? What does life look like now that grace has come... Life. And this is the question that we turn to finally as we see this scandal, the scandal of healing. There it is. We're looking at verses 10 through 16 here as we take a look to what's happening. Did you see it? Here's what happens is the man now is walking about. And um, he was healed on the Sabbath, the text tells us. Some Jewish leaders in the town see him and say, whoa, 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 dude. 
who, why, this is the Sabbath. Why are you walking around carrying your mat? Now, if you don't know much about Jewish culture, that was a big no-no. You see, you didn't do any work on the Sabbath. And to carry something was to break the law on the Sabbath. What's really interesting is, is that to carry your mat on the Sabbath was not a, a breaking of the law in the sense of what you found in the Mosaic law. You see, what had happened by that time was the Jewish leaders had begun to build up fences around the law such that they protected the breaking of that thing. The rationale went, if you don't carry your mat, you can't do work. So for example, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, and so they became particularly, this is where it gets its word, legalistic in its interpretation of the law. Now what's going on here? Why do I say the scandal of healing? Look at verse 14. Look at what Jesus says to him. He says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Y'all, Jesus is not equating here a tit-for-tat correlation between sin and sickness. And how do we know that? Well, if we're gonna, in a few weeks, we're going to look at John chapter 9. And there we see as much. There was a man who was born blind. The blindness was not because of his sin or his parents' sin. So you have to get out of your mind that Jesus is saying, see, don't go sin anymore, or, you know, bad, bad stuff is going to happen to you. That's not what he's getting at. He's actually saying this. He's saying, I want you now to live a life marked out by this radical grace that has come crashing into your life. The scandalous grace that comes to the neediest of people. And this leads Dale Bruner, go ahead, Mary Elizabeth, to say this. Jesus gave the man a new life. Jesus is asking the man to live in a way that reflects that new life. The scandal comes in. It reorients the man. It redirects him, this grace does. But perhaps the most surprisingly, this grace is scandalous in the lives of the religious. And that's why I shared so much with you about what the Sabbath is saying. You see, Jesus is coming interfering the lives of these religious leaders and saying, look, y'all have thought that acceptance with me is by a strict observance of this religious code. Let me say that again. Jesus is looking at the Jewish leaders and saying, y'all think that right relationship with God is had by the strict observance of this religious code. And Jesus has said, no, it is all through me. It is all through me. And so don't you begin to see that when grace comes in, it will always, always, always disrupt the self-made efforts to get God to accept you. But it will also disrupt the alternate vision, the alternate quality, the alternate purpose of your life. You see, once grace comes into your life, it continues to make you more and more like Jesus to have your character reflect His, to love what He loves, to be on the same mission that He is on. Many of y'all know the story from Victor Hugo, uh, known as Les Mis. And the story is of a man named Jean Valjean, who was released from a 19-year prison uh, imprisonment for stealing bread and, and tried to escape. He's marked as an ex-con. He can't find a place to stay or get food or eat. He's desperate, bitter. He's frightened. He's frightening. He's angry. 
And a bishop in the church in a local town finally gives them shelter for an evening, and y'all probably know the story. In the middle of the night, Valjean goes to the cupboard and steals the silver out of uh, the bishop's house. Later that next day, the bishop and one of those working there in the, uh, in the church are uh, mourning the loss of this property when, knock, 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 the constable has brought back Valjean. And there he stands with the silver in his bag. And the bishop confronts him because the constable has said, this man, we believe, has taken your silver. And the real moving part of the moment is, is that in the movie version at least, the hood comes off of Valjean. The bishop looks him in the eye. And he tells the police, he says, he says, yes, this is his silver. In fact, fetch the candlesticks to give him as well. And in a moment, in a moment, grace has changed him. You see, the rest of the story, you begin to see that this debt is canceled. That his sin is forgiven. That mercy is shown to him. And it begins to radically change Valjean. He becomes this remarkably sacrificial character. This man of character who gives his life toward loving others. He has encountered grace. And it's changed him. There's the scandal. There it is. Y'all, grace is scandalous. When grace comes into our life, it utterly changes us. It utterly frees us. Grace certainly saves us, but it always changes us too. And I just want to ask, if you take the name of Christian tonight, where, if you were to look back at your life, where can you see God's grace working in your life? You see, I think a lot of us think, great, man, love it. God likes to extend grace. I love the sin. This is a great partnership here, right? And what the Scriptures say is, is no, is that once God's grace comes into your life, it actually begins to work at the level of your heart to change you, to shape you into a different woman, to shape you into a different man. If you're a Christian tonight, is that happening in your life? The Scripture nowhere teaches that that happens in an instant. That you become a Christian and then all of a sudden you're like Jesus, never sinning again. No. We talk about progress in the Christian life. That it happens over time. And that day after day, year after year, as you look back on your life, you're able to say, you know what? God really is doing something in my world. I really am becoming more and more like my King. Can you say that of you tonight? That's what God is up to. Grace, y'all, you can flip the slide. Grace means then that grace isn't opposed to our effort, but rather it's opposed to earning. You see, when grace comes into our life, it reorients the place of works in it. It utterly changes us. Grace is scandalous precisely because it changes everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during Hitler's Nazi regime. He died a martyr's death, and at his hanging, the doctor of the prison, and the prison camp where he was wrote this. He says, at the place of execution, he, Bonhoeffer, said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. There he is. Step. 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 Composed. Secure in the Father's love for him. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die 
so entirely submissive to the will of God. That's the end of his quote. But this is particularly insightful given the fact that several years earlier, Bonhoeffer himself wrote, when Christ calls a man, He bids him to come and to die. Y'all, this may be physical death. I don't know. For our brothers and sisters over in Syria, it's certainly meaning that for them right now. But for you, what does that death look like? Where has Christ bid you to come and to die? Because of the grace that He has show, so poured out, poured out in your life. Grace always brings new life, but it always is through the death of the old life. What vestiges of that old remain in your life? Grace is the scandal. It's always clearing them out. Always moving. Always setting us free to follow Jesus more and more. The, um, the hope for us tonight, as you begin to consider and ask the question, well, what hope then can I have? And here's what I want you to see. Look at the very last verse that we read. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Isn't this wonderful? You see, I think most of us think, right? And hopefully we've seen tonight that we bring nothing to the table. Our best efforts, our best works, hang on that word, our best works get us nothing with God. But rather the text tells us it's the work of Jesus that gets us everything with God. Everything. It is His finished work on our behalf that gets it for us. Listen to what Octavius Winslow, what a name, right? What he writes. Mary Elizabeth, can you go to the last slide there? He writes this. He says, uh, is that it? Okay, great. This is where I didn't put it in. I'm so sorry, y'all. I'll just quote it for you. He says this, Come away from your fickle love, from your weak faith, from your little fruitfulness, from your uneven walk, from all your shortcomings and imperfections, and let your eyes of faith repose, that is, rest, where God's eyes of satisfied love reposes on the finished work of Jesus. Do you want to be healed? Then look. See. Look to the work of another. Look to Jesus. He brings the healing. He brings it all by the breaking. The breaking of not you and me, but by the breaking of Himself. Let's pray.